You're listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host. I'm Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I work with privately owned companies to help them scale. And this podcast, The Currency, is all about the story of private business in America. Today, my guest is Kent Martin. He's the CEO, founder, and president of Signature Custom Cabinetry. Kent, welcome to The Currency. Hey, it's good to be here, Mike. I'm honored to be part of it. Well, I'm honored uh, to have you today. Now, I'm I'm acting like you're coming on my show, but the fact of the matter is I'm sitting in your hunting camp. We're sitting, I would say, smack dab in the middle of Pennsylvania, if I look at the map. That's right. Uh, up in the hills. Is, is this considered the uh, Allegheny Mountain Range, or what? where are we exactly? Uh, we'd be more in the Appalachians. This Appalachians. is part of the uh, yeah Tuscarora, or Bald Eagle State Forest Okay. in Union County, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it was a nice drive. I came down probably about a three-hour drive, three and a half hours, and uh, so we're sitting here. You're taking a little bit of a break. You're here with some friends doing a week. It's an annual gathering, do a little week-long hunt. It's turned into an annual week that we get up here and do some archery hunting, and they've yeah. got uh, whitetail and black bear open right now. So, okay. Yeah, we were out in the stand this morning <laughs> and probably head out tonight unless we burn the midnight oil with this podcast. Well, I think I'll, we'll have you back out. <laughs> in, so do you sit in a tree stand? Or are you guys doing drives? or what? How do you? No, hunt? no, we sit in the tree stands. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll get you back up in the trees All right. the time. But thanks for, uh, for hosting. So let's take a minute and talk a little bit about your business. Um, you know, Signature Custom is is a is a pretty well distributed company, but it's maybe not well known to the general public. I think you have your products in many homes across at least the the East Coast. But tell us a little bit what what is Signature Custom Cabinetry? What do you do, and who do you do it for? So uh, we manufacture residential custom built to order cabinetry. So residential confines it to the home. Any room that you can uh, screw a cabinet to the wall is uh, would define the range of product that we're going to look at. So mostly kitchen and bath, but home theater, uh, garage cabinetry, home office, anything like that. Kitchens, obviously. Part of kitchens, yeah. kitchen and bath are the predominant. Yeah, the we staple. do probably about 30, 30 custom kitchens a week is what we're putting out wow. plus minus. So. And, and I know the word custom should be obvious, but define custom. Cause I think of the word gets passed around a lot or used a lot. I think of cabinetry, you go, Oh no, it's custom. I went into Lowe's and I custom designed my cabinets. Mm-hmm. Is that the same as what you're doing or what does custom mean in your case? Custom means built to order specifically for a client's home. So we don't, carry any inventory that's pre-built we don't cut even a stick of wood until we have an order and in most cases a deposit that is going for a specific homeowner in a specific address okay so, so each, it's built custom project, built to you yeah one off if we're midway through and you change your mind and don't want it it's too late because it's <laughs> not going to fit for anybody else so let's talk a little bit too about distribution how how far across the u.s are you covering with your product uh, our distribution is nationwide um, wow. the bulk of our of our market is between boston and dc mm-hmm. and then on down the east coast and then as you move west it's in metropolitan areas you know pittsburgh chicago st louis sure. denver Vegas. And then you get to the West Coast. We're uh, up in Seattle with uh, a design firm that we work with all the way down into the Southern California. Okay. So, wow, you're coast to coast. We are, yeah. And you're located where? Um, in uh, Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Okay. So Lancaster County. All right. Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch country. It's a lovely little town. I, I visited you maybe a month ago and we talked you about did. doing yeah. this interview. And um, mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. I, I've been to Lancaster City you know, numerous times, but never to Ephrata. And it was mm-hmm. a it's really amazing. The whole Lancaster County is really impressive. 
I mean, economically, historically, it's a lot of entrepreneurism there, and it's, it's it's a good place. Yeah, we it's a good place to grow up. What I go you, out to Colorado in different places, but it's always good to come home. Yeah. What do you attribute the entrepreneurial spirit uh, that seems to be prevalent in Lancaster County to? Uh, that's a good question. Probably the Pennsylvania Dutch heritage, the whole Swiss German work ethic that's so prevalent in our county and was part of the you know the the beginning of of the when the uh, people first settled in the 1700s sure. that has just sort of um stayed with the area and just uh yeah it's it's sort of the root of it all I think okay well let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey so you've been uh, the owner, not only the owner, you're the founder of the business. The business is mm-hmm. how many years old now? Uh, we celebrate our 30th year this year. Oh, congratulations. So 1989 was our wow. starting point. Yeah. Wow. Who was president in 89? Bill Clinton, maybe? Yes, I, uh, I think so. Yeah, you okay. do have to go back a ways. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this Long was, time uh, ago. Yeah, I'm thinking Ross Perot running for office. And I mean, that's a little bit of history. Yeah, but, we're going um, back a ways. Yeah. yeah, I'll say. Wow. So 30 years. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about how you found yourself in this business. What what drove the founding of the company? Well, it was um, sort of by happenstance, but there was really two things that... Um, that culminated to uh, bring me to that point. One was when my grandfather passed away, I was 12 years old, and he had left behind a shopsmith, which is a five-in-one woodworking tool for the home hobbyist. Okay. So it's a table saw, a drill press, disc sander. You can convert it to all these different things based upon what you're doing at the time. Uh, a lathe was one of the tools. And so he left that to us, and I was 12 years old, and the oldest of three boys, the, my two younger brothers were younger and I was the only one old enough to mess with it, barely. So I started tinkering with wood at that point. I was soon building, you know, gun cabinets and picture frames and dry sinks. You know, people placing these little orders. I had this little uh, side hustle going okay. on. Okay, at 12, at 12 13 years, 13 years, old, years old. Yeah. <laughs> so I was doing that through high school. And when I graduated from high school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I thought I should probably do something with higher education. But I just didn't, I just wasn't settled. Mm. So I decided to kick that can down the road a year and get a job in the meantime. And I ended up working at a company that was just a couple hundred yards down the road from where I grew up called Conestoga Wood Specialties. Mm -hmm. And uh, Norman Hahn was the founder of that company. He founded, I think, in 64. And so their primary product was kitchen doors, kitchen cabinet doors. They built other components, but doors were their primary product. And I found myself out in the assembly department assembling cabinet doors. Seven months into that, they asked me to join the customer service department if I'd be interested, and I was. And that really set off a lot of learning for me. I, for the first time, felt a passion for what I was doing, loved the company, loved the product, loved the industry, and just really put myself into it. About three years or so into that, I started thinking, you know, I think I, think I could do a cabinet manufacturing company. That was really our customers at Conestoga, and I was looking at it from a vendor perspective and just learning the industry. So I talked to my brother, who was three years younger than me, into uh, getting it started with me. He was the first full-time person there. He worked by himself for one year, and we started hiring people. How old would you have been at the time? Early 20s, I'm guessing. Yeah, I would have been um, 22. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. young. Yeah, it was young. Yeah. And and just to, before we go further, what the role in the customer service side of the business, did that... Did that just give you an insight into other businesses? Like you said, you realized like you're serving these uh, manufacturers. My inspiration was um, a lot of the custom, uh, companies we dealt with, a lot of small cabinet shops all over the country. And some of them were just not good business people. Okay. And I saw 
um, it was the bad ones that sort of inspired me. I'm thinking if they can do this and make it work, certainly I can do a lot better. Okay, so you saw a gap, and uh, there's a lot of good ones too. But it was and the when ones you say that bad. Were, is it just bad service or orders at the last minute, mistakes that were made, just bad attitudes, just not running the just, business, just well. not running it well yeah. at all, um, and just it just looked like low hanging fruit to me. Yeah, <laughs> so. That's, that was yeah, at that 22. Was, it's like I could do that. I can do that. Yeah, you're yeah. invincible, right? Yeah, of course. We had nothing to lose. I wasn't <laughs> married yet or anything, so it's yeah. It was, it was a good time to get started. So you convinced your younger brother to join you. He was graduating, and he had been helping me out in the shop to begin with a little bit on you know the side hustle thing. And so I said, you know, I think we can do this. Why don't you make this your first full time job out of high school, and we'll see where it goes. So that's mm-hmm. that's how we started. Nice. So that was uh, 30 years ago. That was 30 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And you're yeah. still in your 20s. I don't know how you did that, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> it's a secret. I'll tell yeah, you later. that's great. Yeah. So the business now, you're distributing, you're manufacturing, you're distributing all over the U.S., you know, focus on the East Coast mainly and hitting some of the major urban centers mid, midway through and west coast how large is the company you know i want to ask you to talk about revenue but like how many employees do you have typically we're 120 125 uh, people okay on one shift wow currently and wow. and growing we actually hired um i think 25 new people this year wow so yeah it's is that typical we're on a growth curve not necessarily we've had years like that you know pre-recession where we grew very rapidly but since the downturn that growth was tough to come by, but we had a large um, competitor go out of business mm-hmm. this year, and so that um, really put a lot of work in our direction, and so we're responding to that. Sure. Wow, that's amazing. So 25, how, how is it scaling up? I mean, I, I guess I can maybe infer some things, but in a s- situation where a competitor goes out of business, maybe you're able to draw some folks that were with a competitor, say, hey, I can bring my experience. That's a little different than we're just landing all kinds of business and I've got to go find and train people. Yeah, that's a great question. In this case, the competitor was about two hours away from us. Oh, so we were not able to capitalize on the workforce. They had 938 people when they shut down. That's a big competitor. And it was, it was a big company. They were the largest, um, actually not too far from our cabin here. They were the largest uh, company, largest employer in Snyder County. Okay. Uh, Just one County over. And so, um, because of the distance, we really just weren't able to, to capitalize on, on sure. the workforce, unfortunately. Um, back in 2000, we had another competitor right nearby within 10 miles close. Okay. And there we had ample workforce that was looking for work. We had customers were looking for product. And we were able to put those two together. And we grew rapidly in that period. That was back in 2000 or 2001. Okay. So we've sort of seen this thing before, but this time we did not have the benefit of the available workforce. So talk to me a little bit about this most recent one. If you're bringing on 25 people, so it sounds like there's sales opportunity because these other folks went out of business. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a bump, whether it's planned or not, you're getting a bump in sales. That's right. Now you've got to staff up. That means you've got to train people because I'm assuming the kind of work you do... You can't just walk in. I'm sure no. there are aspects like I could come in and sweep your floors. I don't think, I, but there's some training that has to happen to do the level mm-hmm. of work you're doing. There so is. How's that been? 25 people sounds like a lot to onboard. Fortunately, we were able to hire some that were talented and skilled that came to us, not from the company they closed, just from other um, cabinet making is a pretty strong industry in Lancaster County. Mm-hmm. And so there is an ample skilled workforce there if you can, you know, attract them to you. So we sure. did have some um, good fortune of hiring people that were skilled and 
and could come and you know plug yeah. right in and assimilate pretty quickly. But sure. then we have entry level positions too, and that's where we have to start the yeah. start the uh, people that don't have experience. How do you guys go to market? You've uh, mentioned distributors, designers. Talk a little bit about how you sell. So we sell exclusively through uh, what we call the design channel. It's independent dealers or independent design firms. We refer to them as dealers or design firms, mm-hmm. sort of um, generically. But that is who we're selling to. So it's it's small, independent, um, often family-owned, mom-pop type uh, businesses that have a storefront. They have a showroom with displays, and people come to them to have their kitchen designed. Sure. So our designers are taking care of you know the full flooring, lighting countertops appliances all that yeah and we're providing just the cabinetry and what is the average maybe you don't maybe this is a hard question to answer but is there an average project size like dollar amount i think a cabinetry i mean cabinets going from four grand to you can put a hundred grand into a cabinet absolutely package yeah or probably more i'm sure you've seen some numbers oh there's some that have been bigger than that but um Anywhere from, I mean, it's a big range. Say forty to eighty thousand would be probably a typical. Wow. Um, just the retail on cabinetry. Just the cabinet yes. package. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that gives listeners a sense for the kinds of projects that you're involved in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And all this from a guy who said, "I think I'll take a gap year, and that's I should go to college, but let me let me figure my life out a little bit. Let me work, and then I'll go from there." And thirty years later, here we are. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about maybe the values, because, uh, you know, to grow a company like this, I mean, I can imagine 22-year-old being good at woodworking and having a two, three-person business and being in his 50s saying, you know, I've, I've just fed my family. But you've grown this into a manufacturer with mm-hmm. uh, national distribution. Mm-hmm. How much did your values, how much did your, um, you know, approach and view of life play into that success, would you say? That's a good question, and it's probably hard to quantify. Um, I was raised with the understanding that we're created, that none of this is an accident. We're here by design. You know, God created humans as his crowning achievement. Mm-hmm. So there's always been this understanding or viewpoint that um, it's not just about business. It's about serving others. It's about creating a great place to work. It's about um, doing right by your customers, doing the, the right thing, maybe not always the easy thing. <laughs> so that, um, I think, has sort of been foundational to how we've approached um, our team members, you know, our associates, employees, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, how we've approached um, even our suppliers. We, we focus on building relationships with our suppliers that are long-term and mutually beneficial. It's not just about hammering them for the cheaper price or whatever it's it's about that long-term relationship so i think in many ways that has fueled probably in ways that we don't even necessarily see or didn't necessarily plan for Mm -hmm. but has fueled the growth of the organization over time so you've got on your uh, website i'll just read you know this isn't verbatim because i wrote it as a note but Mm -hmm. um your vision is to build a great company by honoring god and serving people Mm -hmm. and then you've got your um your mission to achieve greatness by serving, you break that out into, I, I want to say five, serving your customer, what you were just talking about, your associates, your suppliers, community stakeholders. 
And you've got this vision. Uh, I talked about the vision. You know, your values are competency, performance, people, integrity, quality, innovation. This is all published on your website. So yep. you, you don't lead with it. Like I don't go to your homepage and you don't hit me over the head with, you know, the faith aspect of what you do. But you don't hide it either. If I go to the About Us page, that's all front and center. Right. Yep. How is that? integrated it's it's one thing as an owner to say hey this is what i believe and feel you're hiring you got 150 people um i i know for a fact based on the country we live in and the time you can't sit and say well what are you, what's your faith oh sorry i can't hire you or yes you're hired because mm-hmm. of that and you wouldn't do that obviously how do you integrate and inculcate and kind of push these values down into the business i'm kind of curious i get it if there's five people right but 150 people right how does that look well, the thinking, the thinking behind our missions or our vision statement, which is to honor God, uh, build a great company by honoring God and serving people, is basically its signature is more than about just great cabinetry or great customer service or the best finish or the best woodworking or you know whatever. It's it's more than that. Um, and the more part is really how do we impact lives of others, and how can the world be a place that's better because we existed. When the, mm-hmm. when the dust is all settled and, you know, the, the last chapter's written, did we leave things better than what we found it? Or did we have an impact that was positive on people in some way? So that's sort of the genesis behind that, that interesting or maybe a somewhat unusual vision statement. When we move into the mission statement, then, it's, um, we focus on serving customers, serving our associates, team members, mm-hmm. each other, and our vendors. And we think if we do those three things very well then success will follow. And the last two then of the statements about serving are we pivot to the external and we can give back, you mm-hmm. know, charitably. To the community, to, the, to stakeholders. Correct. Whether okay. it's our finances, whether it's our time, resources, you know, whatever we have that we can give back and, mm-hmm. and again, benefit uh, the community. And the community can be next door. Sure. Or it can be around the world. Uh, but leave in some way a positive impact behind us. That's the thinking behind it. Your question about how do we push that out, um, that, that's a great question. And I know that there's a tension, especially in today's society, between you know, how you live out your faith and whether it's even appropriate to talk about in the public square. Yeah, um, We certainly don't mandate or push that or ask people if they concur or agree with right. you know, the honor God part. Certainly, I think most decent human beings would say, look, I'm, I can get behind serving others and I, I can that resonates at some level. Right. And, you know, people sort of live that out in different ways, whether it's just serving a coworker on the production line in a kind manner um, and, and being a team versus, you know, versus an adversarial thing or whether it's bigger than that. There's just so many ways that you can put that into action. I really appreciate that. And I, and I totally agree. I, you know, I put you on the spot a little bit, but I'm just curious because everybody has a different approach and, you know, there's a big push for conscious capitalism and, mm-hmm hold hands and we are the world. And I think sometimes we, we are as a society looking at profits as being evil. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, profits are just a bad thing. How do you balance this idea of serving? Mm-hmm. Cause you can serve to your debt. You can work yourself to the bone and just have nothing left to give That's with right. running a profitable business. That's a great question, Mike. I always um, look at profit. So the way I describe it to people is profit is, is not the purpose of our business. But we do need it to sustain ourselves. And the analogy is oxygen. Oxygen is not the purpose of life. But if you don't have it, 
your life will cease. And you sure focus on it when it's not there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it, things get really urgent when you, you don't think about it before. Sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. So profit's not the, the purpose, but it does allow us to, to, to fulfill our mission if we can run it and be healthy. And so that's how we think about profit. From the very beginning of time, we, I mean, since the beginning of Signature, we have always given 10% of our net profit to charity, mm. that, that tithing concept. Okay. And so, um, again, that's something that it's part of our giving back. It's part of our serving component, whereas we're profitable and the more profitable we can be, the more successful we are in that area, it helps us to be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And give back to our to our team members and, mm-hmm. and benefits and you know, health care and, and those types of things. Um, and also to give charitably uh, that 10 percent. And that's been a key for us. Has there ever been a time where that 10 percent giving was tough, meaning not like hey, I just wish I could keep the money, but I know cash flow can be very difficult. And if you're doing large projects that take material, like for me as a design owner, shop mm-hmm. owner, it was really just labor costs. I didn't have materials. It was just salaries. But for you, for an $80,000 job, job to go through, you've got factory equipment, insurances, salaries, and then all this material you've got to have on hand. Were there times where you were looking at that tie thinking, I don't know if I can make it? And what did you do? You know, Mike, honestly, no. Um, I've never been in that position where I really had felt like I had to choose between a commitment to tithing and say payroll or paying a vendor on time. Okay. Um, and part of that's because we live fairly conservatively. Uh, we're not highly leveraged. We don't carry, and we're essentially debt free. Okay. Um, we will, um, when we do a major uh, building expansion or something like that, you know, we'll take on a modest amount of debt and sure. pay it back quickly. Okay. But we don't, we have not historically been putting ourselves in a position where we're running it that close to the edge. And uh, I have a uh, my first CFO that came on in 1999 is when I hired our first CFO. And he was very instrumental in, in helping to form some of those early foundations sure. that in many ways preceded some of the rapid growth years up until the big recession that we had. Okay. And um, I've been very thankful for, for his, for his um, input and his service. That was a divine appointment, in my opinion. That's fantastic. That now, there. has not using leverage or debt more aggressively kept you from growing? Because sometimes people will make the argument, you know, money's cheap right now and you should be using it to just grow, grow, grow. It has. Okay, so you had to make a conscious choice. We did. In fact, our banker, and we worked with a fairly conservative bank uh, locally in Lancaster County, and um, they used to say to us, look, you, with a demand for your product right now, if you leverage yourself harder, you could grow quicker and look at the return you'd be getting. And yeah, they're dying and, to loan you money, I'm well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and Steve, the C, our C, my CFO would say, can't look. In fact, here's an interesting um, little tidbit. He, he, I was always, I was young. I was eager to grow. I, I loved growing. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see it get larger. Competitive, yeah. I was, yeah, very motivated. And he was always telling me, you know, no, and keeping the reins tight on me. And one day he came to me and said, Kent, I'll tell you what. Um, I've been thinking about this. I don't care how fast you grow. You can grow as fast as you want. And my heart started to skip a beat. And I'm thinking, okay, he's finally, you know, seeing that this is. And he says, but here's, here's the caveat. Whatever you do, we're just not going to start skipping steps. And I immediately knew that he had found a way to say yes, but also say no. Because skipping steps means 
extending ourselves beyond our debt to equity ratios that we knew were safe and doing the types of things that would create leverage. And thankfully, um, when we hit 2008, 2009, we were in a very good position. Mm. It was tough Mm. and it was a very hard season for us. But financially, we weathered that quite well, all things considered. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always very thankful for that. None of us knew that was coming. Sure. But if I'd have been left to my own devices, I'm afraid that things would have been ugly. And uh, who knows? Maybe we wouldn't even be here anymore. I was just thinking maybe we would not be having this Maybe you and I would have never met. Yeah. It's, you, you never know. And I would imagine, too, having that kind of conservative, let's call it a healthy approach. You want to make sure that the organization's healthy. Coming out of the recession, you were probably in a great position to put the pedal down. Mm-hmm. As opposed to now, we've got to kind of regroup and rebuild That's from right. scratch. That's all right. That's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the debt levels are really unique to industry and unique to businesses. The cabinet, the custom cabinet business in particular, the um, line between success and failure can be very thin. You can be mm-hmm. doing great one minute, one year, and you can be doing not so great the very next year. Sure. And it all has to do with demand. You have to carry the talent. You have to carry the infrastructure to produce at that level. And you don't have a lot of, you can't run at 30% uh, 30% under capacity and be profitable. Mm. So, you know, you have to, that, that line between success and failure is so thin. So if something like a recession comes along, it can reverse on you very quickly. Mm. And so, again, that's all part that's unique to this industry. And uh, certainly other industries have different tolerances for debt. Sure. So it's just understanding your business and the industry you're in. And that's how we interpret what's correct for us. So, Kent, we're talking about, you know, 30 years in a conservative approach or worldview, to, uh, how it's informed the business. And specifically, we talked about this concept of serving that, you know, as a Christian, you understand that people are created and the way that you're kind of guiding and, and running the business is this concept of, of serving. And, you know, I, I understand like, you know, being good to your vendors. I'm sure you pay your vendors on time. You don't string them out or you give people a fair price. You're wanting to make sure that your employees are paid well. I, I would just assume those things. Mm-hmm. What does it look like for me if I'm working in your factory to serve? I understand I can be nice to the guy that works next to me in the line, but are there things in the company or the business that I can participate in that are a little bit more focused on service specifically? That's a good question, Mike. I've struggled with that same thing. How do you make this idea of serving real to to everybody in the organization? Um, just this year, actually, at the beginning of the year, we rolled out a... Um, a program, I'll call it, for lack of a better term, where we have offered to give a $500 contribution to any um, organization where one of our team members are serving um, as a volunteer. So it could be at a youth center or you know whatever they're doing. It has to be focused on serving people. That's our mission. And so we'll give $500. They can, on their behalf, on behalf of their employer or whatever, give $500 uh, to that organization. Or... The other opportunity is to will match if they aren't necessarily involved in an organization on an ongoing basis, but see a need somewhere. And it doesn't have to be a nonprofit. Like we don't have to get the tax receipt for it. It doesn't have to be a 501c3. Okay. If, there, if there's a neighbor that maybe has terminal cancer and, you know, they're, in fact, there was a situation where they had some home maintenance that needed to be done. They took a day off and we paid them for half a day. And the idea is they serve, we match. Okay. And we paid them for half a day to, to spend the day at their neighbor helping out. I think there was actually three or four coworkers together that went and, and, and did that service project. Wow. So it's a way to make it tangible. 
they're able to be there, see the individual they're helping, the gratitude, the thankfulness, and actually experience what it's like to give and to serve and make it more real and tangible Hmm. um, for our team members in that way. I like that because what you're doing, you're saying as an owner, I'm saying we're going to do this tithe 10%. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are other people in the firm that are like, I'm really glad that we give to these organizations. That's Mm -hmm. a feel good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it gives someone an opportunity like this neighbor. Hey, I've got this person that it's breaking my heart and I want to do something more Mm -hmm. than just pat them on the back and say, we're here for you. Yeah. I want to really be there for them so the company can get behind that. How, How often are employees taking advantage of this I'll call it a benefit, but this program. This year, I think the, the, the kickoff year, we've had um, half a dozen, maybe eight individuals come okay. forward and want to do that. So we were curious, you know, would, would we have so many people wanting to be involved that we'd end up <laughs> gulping a little bit yeah. or whatever? And, but it, it hasn't been overwhelming, but it's been a good response. Uh, we plan to, we have an annual um, holiday banquet and we'll promote it again this year and talk about it and actually be able to interview or talk to some of the people and um, who were able to be part of this and, and why they did it and that sort of thing. And I think it'll gain st- steam over time. We also have something completely independent I just thought of um, at our annual banquet, but we give out a Servant's Heart Award. So we ask our our associates to nominate fellow co-workers of anyone that they think is worthy of this Servant's Heart Award. And what it is, it's a little bronze um, statue, if you will, on a on a walnut plaque that we build and it's it's um jesus washing one of the disciples feet okay that's that's the statue that's the image sure uh bronze uh casting okay and we use that as a way to honor folks who have demonstrated the ability to serve um and they're nominated by their co-workers and there's a committee that sort of you know goes through the nominations and you know decides how many or you know who actually sure. meet the criteria so we had a gentleman, uh, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, that donated a kidney to a friend from a friend of a friend in Pittsburgh who was dying, needed a kidney uh, wow. transplant. Um, so just there's things like that that people have done that are pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And of course, he was nominated, you know, probably 50 times. Yeah, for, for a lot that. of his coworkers, yeah. sure. And then and there's others that are just. Uh, we had a, a, a co-worker, one of our team members who was, again, had cancer. She was terminally ill. And there was two or three people in the organization that just took her under the wing and just really um, took care of her, even after she wasn't part of it. She couldn't work anymore. She was sure. bedfast, and they were just there, and, and they just served her until the end. And, again, those are the types of things that co-workers can recognize each other mm-hmm. from what they're doing. So it's, it's been a really cool thing, just trying to breed the seeds of service and get people to think. How can I be involved and how can we be part of this mission? My guest today is Kent Martin. He is the founder, president, and CEO of Signature Custom Cabinetry. You can check out their website. You can see these values and missions that we've been talking about. You can also check out the product. I mean, it's it's great that the uh, firm is explicit in its beliefs, but there's all kinds of beautiful photography. You can get a sense for the types of projects. Just go to SignatureCustomCabinetry.com. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. We'll be back after a brief message with more uh, with Kent Martin. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I've got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this 
podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch, like I said. My email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there. But get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. You're listening to The Currency. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. And today we are speaking with Kent Martin, the founder and CEO of Signature Custom Cabinetry. Kent, welcome back. Good to be here, Mike. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate uh, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. Let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's talk a little bit about some of your experiences in the business. And specifically, you know, I think of 30 years, I think of all the experiences you can have owning a business, the ups, the downs. What would you say has been the most challenging aspect uh, of the business for you as an owner? Well, I think if you just really boil it down to one thing, the recession, the Great Recession was probably the biggest challenge that we faced through that period. Um, that was just one of those sort of once in a lifetime events, hopefully anyway, that um, really had a big impact. If you put if you put that aside, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was um, scaling and growing a business from one employee to where we are today. Uh, in a heavily craft environment where the talent and the craftsmanship that's required to produce it is so complex. We have this saying that, um, you're familiar with it's not rocket science. We say it's not rocket science. It's much more complicated. (laughs) And that sort of starts to poke at some of the levels of complexity that we deal with in, in custom cabinetry at the scale that we're doing it at. Well, let me, let me ask you a question around that. Do you, like you started out, being the person doing the work my back in the day yes that's correct if you go back technically signature when signature started i had a full-time job so right the first person was my brother that was really as as same but if you go back into the you know side hustle yes that's correct because i because sometimes you get a business where it's like look i've just always been a sales guy and i saw this thing out there and i thought i can sell that i don't Mm -hmm. know how to do it Mm -hmm. but i can sell it and so now i've got crews all over the state i still don't know how to do the work but i but i just knew how to sell it Mm -hmm. Clearly, you know how to sell it as well, but you started as a doer. That's right. So where I'm, where, what I was going to ask is, if you look at the complexity now, could you go out onto the line and do the work that your employees are doing? And the reason I ask that, that's got to be a challenge. How do you scale a business with that type of complexity beyond your own skill set? Yeah. No, the answer is no. I could not go out and do the <laughs> the work on the line. Uh, there's certainly entry level jobs that I could probably, hopefully, I'd like to think do as good as the next sure, person that sure. would take that uh, entry level position. But understanding all the processes and all the procedures and all the intricacies of, we have a lot of CNC equipment. We also have a lot of handcrafted work that's okay. done. We have finishing is 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 really a chemistry um, hmm. equation. Sure. 
Um, and so there's just so many different aspects. In the final assembly area, there's we have LED lighting and cabinetry. We have automated electronic, um, you know, push to open doors and drawers. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of complexity mm-hmm. that that um, and all the options and choices that consumers and designers have for cabinetry. I couldn't begin to tackle uh, that that work without starting in like any other entry level person. So how did you navigate that? I mean, I assume that would be your answer, just hearing the, the level of complexity and the, and the size of the project you're doing. How do you grow a company beyond your own technical capabilities? Our focus has been to, um, well, first of all, we start with people. At all, You always start with people that you know, are trustworthy and, and that, that you can count on, that have a good work ethic, that, that bring the talent to the table. <clears throat> but we focus on processes that are repeatable. Um, we have, you know, standards in place. We have standard work documents and all those types of things that as we've grown, we train uh, people to those documents and we um, are just trying to be as repeatable and consistent as we can as we go along. And that's how we scale. Hmm. And did you have key hires where you said, look, I've got a like I, I can take the company so far, but I need to get some type of engineering person in here or I'm just, you know, you know I'm just curious, like how you leveled up in the, the technology and the complexity. Yeah, I could go back as far as 1992 and begin to name individuals over the next um, 20 plus years that we hired uh, because they had certain skill sets that we needed at a given time. So they're strategic hires. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, strategic or even divine. There were situations where um, we had the right people to show up at the right time with the right skill sets. Okay. And the only way I know to explain it, you know, once or twice is luck, but eventually you start to say, you know, we've really been blessed here. Um and I call those, you know, those divine appointments. Divine appointments, yeah, sure. absolutely. Are, are you a big planner? Like, do you spend time every year doing a strategic plan? Do you mm-hmm. map out, like, here are the three pillars of our strategy and here's what we're going to focus on? Yeah, we do. In fact, we have, um, I'm going to call it an annual rhythm, where we have uh, the executive team gets together for a two or three day offsite every year where we create a strategic plan. There's two parts to that. One is our uh, profit plan, which is a fancy word for budget, and the other is a um, our blueprint for success, which would just be another way of saying business plan. And so we take our profit plan and our blueprint for success, and we put that together for one year, and then we try and cast a three to five year view as well. It's not quite as obviously defined, but sure, we do try and look beyond that. Um, we then have a rhythm of meetings and discussions that go all the way down to a daily stretching huddle in on the production floor so we have the annual event we have uh, monthly meetings with the executive team or with the management team which includes the executive team we have bi-weekly meetings where we get the whole company together every two weeks we update the entire organization on the plan how we're doing what our quality champ well we actually we look at production there's three priorities it's safety quality and then productivity or efficiency okay. in that order and so we just have this rhythm and we're religious on that communication meeting, you know, rhythm where we're monitoring and measuring that plan. And that happens you know, each year. How long have you been, you know, running the company with that approach? The um, beginnings of that uh, process would have started back in the early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. And was that hard to implement? I think because sometimes you want to bring some rigor, some discipline to the business. Some people are th- 
I can't wait. This is great. Mm-hmm. Other people are, the last thing I want to do is sit in another meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't like this waste of my time. Well, we try and make meetings purposeful and we know why we're there. We execute the agenda and we get on with it quickly. So okay. we, it doesn't become laborious or just, you know, one meeting after the other. Sure. So we, we stick to our procedures, but we don't try not to add to it. Um, and it, it was built over time. So it, I wouldn't say it was hard. Um, we would identify a need at any given time and we put a piece of that in place and then you go down the road a spell and you know, you sure. figure out you need something else and you put that in place. And after a bit, you just have this system or this process that's okay. developed over time. Well, that was going to be my next question was, is this a system that you've kind of adopted that somebody else developed, but it sounds more like you've, you've kind of developed over time, picking and choosing from, from tools out there and crafting what you need. One of the ways that I've been inspired to grow the business is I, I love to look at people um, who have been successful and learn from them. And then we just beg and borrow shamelessly and <laughs> take what works for us and we integrate it and we leave the rest, you know, lay or whatever. Um, but I could point to a lot of different companies or even individuals um, in the business world over the last 20 years that have shaped and have uh, contributed to, to the way we do things today. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you talked about begged and borrow. I don't know who, there was an artist. I don't know who it was that said something like, um, you know, copying somebody else's work or stealing someone's out. It's the highest form of flattery. flattery right? yes. yeah. yeah. I'm familiar you're, with that. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. You're really essentially saying this is great stuff. I want to yeah. use it. That's great. And, uh, you're the entrepreneurial in the way that you go about doing that. Um, you know, I, I kind of took us down a pathway. You had mentioned that this growth was like one of the biggest challenges. So you talked about, you know, the, the economic crisis being mm-hmm. tough. Was there something about the growth? I mean, I, I started asking some questions, but was there something specific around it that was that, that was tough or that brought that to mind for you? No, not necessarily. It's it was it's just a lot of companies in our industry get to, you know, five or ten man shops and they just sort of stagnate there. And um, there's a lot of reasons why it's just cert- it's difficult to get over certain thresholds because of the complexity and just have to kind of reinvent yourself. In fact, one of our vendors said to us, uh, it was a while ago, one of our largest uh, suppliers, but he said, you know, what amazes me about you guys is you always keep reinventing yourself. And I never thought about it that way, but hearing him say it as that was his impression of us sort of helped me to um, think about that and say, you know what, that is what we're doing and then be more intentional about it going forward. Hmm. Well, let's talk then about uh, if, if that's been your biggest challenge, what are you most proud of with the business? What what do you feel is the biggest victory or the biggest accomplishment? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I was always taught pride was not a good thing. <laughs> so you ask me what I'm most proud of. What are you, what are you most humbled <laughs> about? Yeah, by the business. That's yeah. a great way of saying it, Mike. Thank you. I feel much more comfortable answering that question. Oh, good. <laughs> In fact, that's actually a good way to lead into the answer that I would give to you. And you know what I'm most proud of, or what I'm most humbled by, is the team of individuals that we have uh, that have come together over the last 30 years and have helped to really make a contribution where we're at and, and get us to where we are. And that sounds maybe like a trite statement, but um, there's just so, so many things that have been randomly contributed by individuals. I shouldn't say randomly, but just very diverse contributions that just collectively come together. Um, for instance, we back in 1995, I started um, saying, look, there's got to be a way. Um, at that time, we were taking handwritten orders off the fax machine, okay. and then um, you know we had to manually go in and type in everything into a some sort of 
uh, document that would then go to the shop and you had to manually price it. And, um, you know, if a cabinet had a finished end on the right-hand side, we call out finished end right. Or might, we might, or the next person typing might say um, right-hand finished end. Or it just nothing was consistent. Sure. And I said, we should be able to punch a cabinet code into a computer and have that spit out all the information that's needed. And so we hired a independent programmer and started uh, building a database that today runs our entire company. Wow. It's grown into many different areas. Now... Um, we were dreaming of having orders come in from the customers, um, electronically from customers, um, online before the old FTP protocol wasn't even in existence yet. <laughs> so again, this is some of those types of things that we've done over the years that, I mean, I haven't done them, but you paint the vision, you ask the tough questions and people just rally and they figure it out. Hmm. And, uh, that's, it's just so satisfying to, to watch that happen. It's humbling. Yeah, yeah. it is. Nice. So it's the, uh, it's, it sounds like, I mean, I just, what I'm hearing from you that you're humbled by proud of, and I know what you mean by the pride issue, but that you've had a vision there are things that you wanted to, to accomplish, but it's the creativity, it's the drive, it's the, um, commitment of the people. So as an owner, you can sit and say, yes, you know, I like not, not that a lot of owners do this, but you know, there's this kind of caricature like i'm the great man i built this big business you know mm. the, the kind of like you know there's like there's some business people in this limelight that a little braggadocious you yeah. know look look at yeah. i'm big deal and what i'm hearing you say is you're wowed by what your people have helped you create together i think yeah if you create an environment that everybody can come and um take their god-given skills and use them to their fullest potential great things happen and that's, to me, that's the motivating point. And to the extent that we've been able to accomplish that, that would make me proud. Sure. If I can say it that way. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons I like doing this podcast. And when I talk about the story of private business, I think that that same creativity can show up in other arenas. You know, look at families doing great things together. Mm -hmm. You can look at, you know, municipality coming together. Hey, we're going to rebeautify. And But there's something about private industry that really provides a platform mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a place, an arena mm -hmm. uh, for people to, to really make an impact. And at the same time, do it in a way that creates wealth, makes the world a better place. I mean, you, you, you can beautify a building and be, you know, really sit on the taxpayers to do it. You didn't create any wealth. You have a nice building, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you didn't make the world necessarily a you didn't move it forward. Right, right. You had to rob Peter to pay Paul to do yeah, it. Yeah. But there's something about private industry where it's like, it's virtuous in the sense that everybody wins if it's done well. If it's done well, that's right. Yeah. If your heart's in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's excellent. Absolutely. What, what do you see, you know, as far as, um, I'll get two-pronged question. Where, where do you see your industry going? And I guess the second part is, you know, what's your vision for the company? But let's talk about that first piece. Where, you know, I'm looking at the market right now. I'm sure you're looking at even closer. You know, so housing's doing great and all that now, but where are things going? What's the economy look like? So where do you think your industry's going over the next five, 10 years? Well, there's a lot of different ways to tackle that question, Mike. Um, I, uh, I don't mean to ruin your week of hunting. Oh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. This is, this is when I get good think time. So yeah. this is, this is perfect. Um, the, the kitchen business as a whole has become a fashion industry. 30 years ago when we started, if you had cabinetry that had a cathedral raised panel door on the wall cabinets and a square raised panel on the bottom harvest gold oak maybe a dark cherry finish and a brass knob 
you were you were good to go. You were in business. You were in business. Yeah. You were doing 80, 90%, 90, 95% of the of of what people wanted. Today it is just um, very complex. I mentioned earlier we're integrating lighting, we're integrating electronic components. Um, doors are you know made out of wood or uh, glass. There's so many leather. There's so many different materials and mm. textures that are starting to be integrated into the design world. So there's just it's it's just the complexity continues to grow and and proliferate. So on one hand, that gives us a chance as a custom manufacturer to differentiate ourselves, and it's it's a positive. Uh, the complexity piece has to be tackled, as of course, and you have to be able to execute well in that complexity. Um, one of the encouraging things about the market overall, though, is that the millennial generation is the biggest generation to date. They're mm-hmm. bigger than the boomers. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're so starting to flex too. They are. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just ran into a term a week ago that was new to me. And it was early adulthood. Early adulting. Uh, early adulthood was the term. Okay. Um, emerging adulthood, maybe is what they called it. But the the speaker brought out the fact that he said adolescence was not a life stage. If you go back far enough into oh, yeah. history, yeah, I've heard that as well. Like adolescence just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Right. You were a child. Next thing, you were on the farm in the field working. You went from childhood to basically adult right. overnight. Right. And expected to behave like an adult. Absolutely. You could have been 14 years old and there was an expectation. Exactly. Like, act like a man. Act like a man. Yeah. And when, um, you know, our society began to move off the farms and become more urbanized, all of a sudden you had young people in this stage between adulthood and, ch- and, 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 and childhood, and they termed the thing adolescence. Right. Well, emerging adulthood, he said, is you don't stop, bu- he said, stop busting on the millennials. It's just a new life phase that's emerging. Instead of getting married in their early 20s and settling down and buying a house and getting a mortgage and, and a job, you, you know, people are getting married 10 or more years later. Mm-hmm. It's a different stage of life. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that way, understand it that way, um, it's easier to understand the whole millennial generation. But that generation is now moving into that prime phase of, of home buying and starting, starting a family and all that. So that's very encouraging for an industry like ours going forward. That's exciting. Yeah, and I think millennials are taking a lot of pride. This is a broad stroke. I'm not. Uh, I don't have the marketing data to back this up. It's all anecdotal, but from what I'm seeing, they're taking a lot of pride in their homes, mm-hmm. even their first house. They might save up, buy a little starter home, but they'll gut it. They'll put all you know. They'll they'll update it. A lot of times they're doing the work themselves. A lot of pride of ownership. A lot of customization. They want to create kind of a environment. They're not happy to have cookie cutter you know, experiences. So that's, that's really interesting. You know, I think I'm guessing you and I are similar age. I, I'm Gen X. Yeah. That's right. Me. So we're, the, yep. we're kind of caught in between yeah. these two massive demographic groups. That's right. It used to be, uh, they talk about Gen X all the time and the postmodernist attitude of whatever. Gen X doesn't even show up anymore in the discussion. Millennials no. have just really eclipsed. So yeah. it's, it's kind of the battle of these two generations. Mm-hmm. And when I hear millennials complaining, so as a Gen Xer, I might complain, oh, you know, the boomers won't get out of the way when I was a younger guy. The millennials don't even complain about us, Gen X. We don't even factor. That's right. They're complaining about the boomers. That's right. So, well, that's the other reality. And again, it has implications for our industry, but um, boomers are living longer and they're healthy and they're um, building their retirement homes. We have um, one customer who focuses on 55 and over communities. And he's one of our largest customers, and those customers are spending big on cabinetry oh, and other yeah. uh, luxuries of the home. So yeah. you kind of have it at both ends. We're bookended by the boomers on one end yeah. and millennials on the other, and but, both are contributing right now to the to the economy. 
I, it's such a great insight, Kent. So what, knowing that, what is your vision for the business? I understand you've told us, I like to run things conservative. You're not going to leverage out and just capitalize on this uh, tidal wave of millennials. But uh, what's your vision for the business? You know, I turned, um, two years ago, I turned 50 and became grandfather all one in oh, one year. Congratulations. So that was slightly That's a, traumatic. Thank yeah, well, you. existential <laughs> uh, shift there. <laughs> well, I've been... Uh, I think that, I don't know, uh, 50 is probably more than halfway through, but we think about 50 being it's the halfway mid, yeah, mark, yeah. you know, and, um, but it's, it's, it, it has me thinking more and more about, uh, succession, um, in the next, you know, 15 years, let's say, um, I, we got plenty of time, but what does it look like to pass signature onto that next generation of leadership in a way that it's, uh, well stewarded and not, you know, um, not somehow, um, ruined or or it goes away and mm -hmm. private private equity does not have a good track record in our business in our industry because of the complexity and the craft nature it's just uh doesn't fit the typical mba model of how you do things um so what is next um I, i'm always a growth guy i love growing the organization i've always dreamed of you know that next level of of growth and and we'll continue to push out in that way but also do it in a way that is building the next generation of leaders from within. That's really the best way to think about the future. If we're not growing that next and investing in that next um, generation of leadership within the organization, um, then we're not giving it its best chance going forward. Mm. So we put a lot of time into talent management uh, recently, the last couple of years, understanding um, what our needs will be in the future and mm -hmm. how to grow and develop and invest in existing individuals, identify that talent and invest in them. We have... Um, we have talent management for, you know, the executive team, growth and development, and then the management team and, you know, on down through. And then there's this group at, 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 at the end of that list, if you will, it's, that's the high potentials that we attempt to try and identify those that we think have uh, potential for the future. Sure. Think intentionally about what we're doing now to invest in them and, and keep them motivated and growing so that they're prepared to take on more responsibility as, as we grow and as, as we those of us that are in that first lead generation in our company start to age out. So yeah. again, that's 10, 15 years down the road, but we're well, think, thinking about it a while. Well, I think, well, you, you know, you, I think you and I turned 50, I also turned 52 years ago. So we're this pretty okay. much the same age, but um, I know at 50, you go 10, 15 years, Hey, it's a ways out. But I also know 15 years at this age goes quickly. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's 20, 15 years took forever. That's right. Now it's like, yeah. I only have 15 years to get all this work yeah. done. That's yeah. not enough. Um, so I can appreciate both the it's out of ways, but also the immediacy of we need to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me, you know, like what, what I'm hearing is a, I want to grow. So I'm just, I, I'll say competitive. You didn't use that word, but there's a sense. I, I just like, to, even if I'm competing against myself, I want to keep growing, mm -hmm. but B, I want to ensure and maintain the essence of what we built. You're I'm not, what I'm not hearing is I'm looking to cash out or I'm looking to do some big merger and we can become, you know, there's, Yes, I want to grow, but I also want to protect the essence of serving people, doing great work, you know, this, this, uh, this, you know, leaving the world a better place than I found it ethic. It would somehow feel like just an innate failure if there was some big you know, liquidity event or cash out or big merger that, you know, hit the papers and was all, you know, glorious and grand. But two, three years down the road, the culture was ruined. People were miserable. They weren't enjoying the job. It wasn't, I mean, we, we were recognized as one of the best places to work in central Pennsylvania three years in a row. Okay. That means a lot because it means that 
as people filled out those forms and voted or, or whatever they did to uh, not vote, but fill out the forms and those assessments that, that they determined who they, those companies were, mm-hmm. our folks were happy. Mm-hmm. They enjoyed coming to work every day. And that's very, that, that's a sense of a uh, very satisfying feeling. Sure. To see that ruined and, and just somehow just, um, just, just not stewarded well and just gone would be, that'd just be, there'd be a sense of failure. Sure. Like the most, to you, the most valuable aspect and part of the business, me, the thing that you're most grateful to have had a hand in growing and making went away, even if the business was still around. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That piece that mattered to you is gone. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've often said I wished I would have built and sold a couple of companies before I came emotionally attached to one. <laughs> because <laughs> there's something to be fun about that as a business guy. You know, there's a lot of appealing aspects to that type of environment. And, but, um, yeah, it's, it's too late. I'm emotionally attached. And it, it would feel like we failed if we messed that up. And my guest today is Kent Martin. He is the founder, president, and CEO of Signature Custom Cabinetry. Kent, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, Mike. Um, keep up the good work. I've been enjoying your podcast if I listen to it. So, and I understand you have a lot of people around the world listening in too. Yeah, so it's growing. Go, go, thank you for congratulations and your you. success. Yeah, I appreciate that's, that. That's it's great. fun. It's yeah, awesome. You know, it's fun to see the growth. I'm. You kind of become a data junkie. Like you start looking at the numbers and yeah. what countries, and yeah. it's been really cool to see it grow. Of course, like you, I want you know, I always want to do better, but. Yeah. Um, but I think the nicest thing about this, and just to give a compliment back, is to be able to sit and talk with folks like you. I, I get to meet owners all over and talk to them, hear their story, hear their heart, and uh, understand more about what they're doing and how they contribute. So um, I'm really grateful for that. So again, thanks for joining me. Guys, do me a favor and make sure to check out Kent's company. You can go to SignatureCustomCabinetry.com. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. They also have uh, Facebook, Instagram pages as well. You can check those out. There are links on their website. But check them out. And, you know, if you're doing a kitchen job in the near future, uh, I think they list their distributors, their designers. So if there might be someone in your neck of the woods that can help you out. Also, if you have not done so already, and I can't believe it if you're going to answer you haven't, Subscribe to this podcast. It's such great content. I love talking to people like Kent. And if you enjoy this, if you've listened this far, I know that you do too. So go over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Hit that subscribe button and you will get interviews like this delivered hot and fresh to your device of choice. Guys, I love you all and I'll catch you in the next episode.